Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we speak with Anthony Ugoni. Anthony started his professional career in biostatistics, and he then made the switch over to corporate Australia to work at the National Australia Bank, where eventually he was head of analytics. And then he moved over to SEEK, where he is today and currently acting as the director of global matching and analytics. Many of you know Anthony because he's very involved in giving back to the community, and he's an advisor at ADMA, at Melbourne University, Pascal, and IA. Some of the things that we discuss is how analytical thinking adds value both in research and in corporate, how analytics can take you to any field, the surprises and rewards of moving into corporate. Uh, He also tells us about how his transition happened in terms of moving from research into corporate. We talk about the importance of educating your organization on data science how to understand the gray in business and appreciate people's journeys. We talk about data science for social good and why analytics professionals are like Batman. And he also tells us how to stand out in data science interviews. It's a really great episode. I hope that you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe Flores. And today I'm speaking with Anthony Ugoni. How are you doing, mate? I'm very well, Felipe. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for being here. I've um, been looking forward to speaking to you for quite a while. And I keep hearing about all the good things that you're doing, both at Seek and for the data science community in Melbourne and in Australia. And I really wanted to get a chance to speak to you and pick your brain and hear about your journey. So thank you so much for being in the podcast. No problems. At the beginning of the interviews, I always like to ask people about the early days of their career and how they got started in data science. I do that for a lot of the listeners to hear how today's leaders got started and they can compare that to where they are in their careers. So I wanted to ask you, how was those that early time for you? How did you get started in the data space? It goes back a long, long time. I was in grade four in primary school, would you believe? Yeah. We, used to, we had an uncle who lived two doors up from us um, who did shift work and he would go home. He'd get home early, live by himself, never got married. He would always stop by and have a cup of coffee with mum and dad on the way home after work. In a past life, he actually used to be a jockey, training horses, racing horses. Wow. It was coming up to Melbourne Cup time and, and my parents always had the newspaper around. They really encouraged my brother and I to read and be up to date with world news, etc. And I would always migrate to the sports section because I enjoyed sports. I didn't enjoy politics at the age of 10 or 11. 
And I remember talking to my uncle about all these numbers that appeared on all of a sudden on the back pages of the sports pages. And I said, what are all these, these horses' names? What are all these numbers next to the horses? And he explained to me that it was this number here is the weight that the horse is carrying. And this, these numbers here describe where those horses placed in their last few races. And on and on, there was a, quite a raft of numbers that were available there. It occurred to me, there must be something about these numbers that you can use. And there were no spreadsheets back then. And I literally got a big piece of butcher's paper that I'd been using for a, an art project at school. And I wrote out, literally wrote out a formula with what I know now to be weights against different variables that appeared in the newspaper. And so then what I did was, I think there were 24 horses. And then I literally took the information from each horse and I punched it through my formula and it spit out I used those numbers as a ranking mechanism. And what I didn't realize at the age of 10, I only heard the name you know, 15 years later in my career, 20 years later, I built a predictive model. Now, I hadn't actually you know, optimized for anything. There was no maximum likelihood function that I was playing with. And the target variable was kind of something that I'd made up in my own head. But at the age of 10, I had this idea that um, information could be used to predict stuff. And so then I just assumed, coupled with the fact that I was brought up Catholic, and so I just assumed that I was always guilty of something, but I'd always assumed that there was what we call today like a data exhaust as people walk around and they produce data out of their smartphones and their laptops, etc. that there's information being collected continuously. I had just assumed way back in 1980 that that was happening at that time. And so consequently, I was a mostly really well-behaved child in public because I just assumed that <laughs> data was being captured, we were being watched and predicted against and um <laughs> I missed out on a lot of opportunity to get up to no good because I'd assumed too much too soon. But that was the start. And I tell that story to a lot of students. And I tell that story because I think data science, people don't understand that data science is, it truly is more art than people think. Obviously, it's a lot of science, but those people who are successful are the ones who just find ways to play and kind of goof around with data and think of, hey, if I had this data, what could I do? Or look at this data that I've stumbled across and I've got my hands on, you know, something that I did when I was 10. I wonder if I could transform it and get it to do something that it hadn't been intended to be used for. And I was lucky enough to kind of discover that desire at a very, very early age. That's right. And that was so interesting to have that. And in such a random event to discover a passion for numbers and for prediction without even knowing the concept. Absolutely. Yeah. And that story only really remembered the details of that. I was in a part of my career later on down the track and one of my staff members was building, I think they were building a defection model for credit cards. And they made a reference to a piece of data and they said, you know, like horse racing. And I just had this lightning bolt kind of hit me in the back of the brain and this memory came flooding back and I thought, oh my God, wow. 10 years of age on a piece of butcher's paper building propensity models. So consequently, when you're that sort of person, you're not the sort of person who's, I wasn't all that popular at nightclubs, let's just put it that way. <laughs> I do, I completely understand. And then was it, a, how was the trajectory for you to, from there, from having that early curiosity and playing with numbers around the horse problem, how was that trajectory from there to your first job in data science or discovering the world in a professional yes. way? I think of myself as being incredibly lucky. So I had fantastic teachers, a couple of inspirational teachers, particularly in high school. I'm dating myself now, but my first year at the university was 1988. And so there certainly wasn't a data science movement and 
aside from credit risk in banks, there really wasn't much of a analytics movement. There was BI and reporting, but certainly not an analytics movement. So when I went to university, kind of the career guidance that I got from a number of teachers, and also I was highly influenced by my dad, who wanted to be a physicist, but came to Australia as a refugee, couldn't study. I decided wow. I wanted to be a physicist. And in first year university, again, dating myself, standing in line at the union hall, kind of waiting to enroll, none of this online business that these kids are spoiled with today, mapping out my first year curriculum on the back of the handbook that you'd buy at the Union Hall. And I had this half a unit that I had to make up. I'd, I'd taken all the math subjects and all the physics and electronic subjects, but I still had a, this half unit gap. And so I looked through the handbook high and low to try to find something that slotted in there. And there was this subject called statistics. I had a look, needed some maths, it fit into my timetable. I thought, oh, I'll do this for a laugh. And I fell in love from day one. So a couple of weeks into my first year, I decided I was going to pursue statistics and you know, all the things that come with that probability theory, the world of inference, et cetera, estimation, and just never look back. At the end of my undergraduate, what did I do? I did three years undergraduate and then a year full-time as honours. Again, I got lucky coming towards the end of honours. For those people old enough to remember, we were going through the recession that we had to have here in Australia. And one of my lecturers said, hey, look, I've got some funding. I'm doing some research on genetic condition. Did you want to stick around for a few months? So I said, yes. I did that over the summer of 91, 92. And through that work, I stumbled at a local kind of seminar into a guy who was running the biostatistics unit at Monash University. Did medical research for three and a half years, I think, there. and then. I bumped into the guy who had left Monash and created the vacancy that I filled. I bumped into him at the University of Melbourne, did six and a half years of um, medical research there. And what I didn't realize was I had done a 10-year apprenticeship into the discipline of experiments, design and analysis, etc. Kind of was approaching my 30th birthday, thought I need to make a choice here. If I stay here at the university, I'll be an academic for the rest of my life. Let's go see what happens out in uh, corporate Australia. And that experimental experience, I didn't realise just how highly valuable and coveted it was by the corporate world. And so looked around, landed a job at National Australia Bank and um, had intended to step out of academia for three years. And uh, so 18 years later, I'm still here in corporate Australia. Yeah. That's fantastic. And in those early days, what was it about, about statistics that, that grabbed you so much, that made you fall in love with it so quickly? Yeah. I, I, the amazing thing for me, all, all of my mathematics up to that date was what mathematicians know as deterministic. Mm -hmm. So aside from a little bit of measurement error, and for me it was in the physics lab, but most labs, everything was the forms of the equations that you were trying to derive. They were really well known, they were really well structured. What I loved about statistics was it was a world where you could impute knowledge from data as opposed to all the things that we'd already known as an undergraduate in physics. We were just taught the formulas that the great scientists had derived before us. Whereas in statistics, from an undergraduate level, you were being taught the methods to impute knowledge from data where there may or may not be an insight. And so that really piqued my interest from early days where instead of learning what everybody else already knows in physics and statistics, you were being taught how to find out stuff that people don't know yet. So they got you on the journey early. But there was also a little bit of ego in there. When I told the other 
and physics students and physicists that I was taking on statistics, I started hearing things like, oh, statistics is the mathematics that physicists and engineers don't like to do because it's too hard. And so when they told me that that's too hard, I thought, well, you know, that's the mathematics that I have to do. Um, so there was a little bit of ego in it as well. But um, yeah, the just the world of uncertainty, being able to, you know, it was my first foray into understanding that there was still knowledge to be derived and there is still a an incredible art to be had in mathematics and statistics kind of really lit that candle for me. That's incredible. Yeah, that's so interesting that you're able to see the power of statistics to discover new things and to, and from an experimental perspective, to see that so early on. That is fantastic. And I wanted to ask you, oh, I'm torn because I, I partly want to ask you if there was something about the way that the statistics was taught or something about your introduction to statistics that made you realize the power of it as such from the beginning. So again, incredibly lucky to have some inspirational teachers at university as well. It had nothing to do with the mathematics, but there was a guy, his name was Bob Stoddy, and he, incredibly humble, humble guy, American guy who comes to Australia, he took it upon himself to, even at first year level, to know all the students. It was just inspirational from a personable, I guess, point of view. Every opportunity that I got, he just made himself available to the lowly first years and he would be happily impart his knowledge. The person who really kind of cracked it open for me early, early days was the professor in that department at the time, Professor Niels Becker. And he was one of the pioneers in how statistical methods can be used to plot out and predict uh, the AIDS epidemic and the lifetime of the virus affected individuals. And without seeing that example early on, I may not have, it may have taken me a while to get around to this, but then that understanding that, ah, uh, this is what evidence-based medicine is all about. We can take data and we can genuinely, genuinely use it for the great of mankind. I'm certainly no medical doctor and I'm, you know, I don't understand anatomy, I don't understand pharmacology, but I've been privileged enough to be involved in a couple of pieces of research that haven't directly led to you know, groundbreaking medicines and treatments, etc. But those pieces of research have been in part of the pathway for the scientists who have gone on to great things. So I'm 10 steps removed from some great outcomes in medicine. That for me is good enough to have been part of that journey. And I get that simply because of the application of mathematics. And so that's amazingly humbling to be so tenuously joined to some of these great outcomes. But for normal people like myself who don't have that brilliance of of those great researchers, I've found a way to get involved. So answer your question, professor at a university who could have gone into corporate Australia even at that time and made great money, um, lived comfortably and happily ever after, saw the opportunity in academia to help out, you know, mankind, I guess, and stuck with it there. That is fantastic. And that made, he made such a difference in your life and, and many people's lives, obviously. Yeah. That is really great. So you mentioned a little bit about the type of medical research that you were doing back then. Was there anything in specific that you really enjoyed during that time when you were doing the medical research? People who are curious like myself, the privilege that you get being in that environment, particularly in a medical research environment where these brilliant medical people, again, if they set themselves up in private practice, equivalent to having a money-making machine in their bedroom, uh, have chosen to bypass the riches and devote themselves to research. 
So to be around those people, an absolute privilege. But the thing that really struck me, and it continues to strike me today, I, I still try to get involved with some studies, a couple of studies every year. When you're around brilliant people, just the way that they think and problems that you think are incredibly complex and again for a normal person like me you think that these things are so complex when i think about them i actually get paralyzed because i don't know where to start i don't know where to finish i can't plot out a process on how to solve this thing the clarity of thought that these brilliant people bring to any problem is quite amazing having had that opportunity to learn how to kind of break down a problem into its constituent parts i'd never say that i'm great at it now but i'm certainly better for it sort of better assets around being exposed to those people. And then further on down the track, I certainly don't want to talk down the people in corporate Australia because the best strategists, the best thinkers in corporate Australia, they actually do the same thing. They see a problem, they break it down into its bits. What's that old saying? How do you eat an elephant? It's one mouthful at a time. That's how they do it. They, they figure out what are the bits that they need to work on and just slowly, slowly grind through it. That's fantastic. Again, not through any design, I was incredibly lucky, but um, when I talk to various industries, I get to talk to the HR industry quite a bit now because it seeks in the recruitment and HR space. And HR and recruitment, in terms of using data science in any real anger or any real force, they only just started thinking about it in the last five years. And medical research has been doing it for 200 years. So if you've got any students who are coming up who are listening to the podcast, there is an enormous wealth of knowledge. Pick up any introduction to epidemiology textbook and read it cover to cover because the way you think about data in context of predicting something. So you know, I have publications in osteoporosis and cervical cancer and falls and head injuries in elderly people. I think I have something in the order of about 70 publications now. The techniques that you use to set your data up to answer those questions are exactly the same as trying to construct your data to figure out, is this credit card transaction fraudulent? Or is it a genuine transaction? Is exactly the same as trying to figure out, uh, will this customer purchase a home loan? Will this customer defect from uh, from our organisation and then be a customer no longer? Is exactly the same way that we think about data here at Seek when we try to figure out, is this candidate a good fit for this job? And I don't have any experience. I don't have any training in HR. I don't have any formal training in financial services. I don't have any formal training in um, financial crime. I've never had any training in any sort of medical environment, but analytics has taken me to all those places and the processes are the same. But the environment that has the most robust and well thought out processes to solve these problems is the medical world. Because in a corporate world, if you get a home loan model slightly wrong, then the worst thing that happens is you have a marketing campaign and you offer home loans or you offer the opportunity to speak to a banker about a home loan to somebody who doesn't want a home loan. But if you get your analytics wrong in medical science, then you're possibly costing people lives if you get that wrong. So the medical world has realized this very, very early and the techniques around experimentation, the techniques around appropriate use of data, the techniques around how you structure that data to answer that question are incredibly strong in that medical environment. And so I would encourage everybody who hasn't done so, look at epidemiology, look at introduction to epidemiology. For me, that's kind of where I've set myself apart and how I became a leader in corporate Australia is because I had that knowledge of what we can and can't do with the data or how we get 
the best models, how we answer the questions for the business. That medical world has got it all. And we think we're inventing something new in data science that's been sold in large about 200 years ago. So we're not as special as we think in, in the corporate world. That's right. But that's there's so many things so exciting about that recommendation and that journey that you just described. One of them is data science can take you to places that you didn't expect that you were going to go. As you were saying, like talking about financial services, financial crime, and coming from a background in, in medical research, those are seen as obviously at surface level as completely different worlds. But with the rigor of the medical research, you were able to go into those new worlds and add value. And the other thing that I really liked was the innovation and the difference of thinking that comes from knowing other specialties besides the one that you're currently tackling. So in this case, that the medical research background gave you the knowledge and of data and the rigor of analysis to add value in multiple other fields. I'm sure that was a really exciting journey for you. And I think it's a great piece of advice for people listening. I've had an incredible adventure. I, you know, I've got a, a bunch of friends who I've known from a very early age, and none of them pursued the sort of career that I've pursued. I'm now in my, I'll be generous to myself, in my mid-40s. Probably, <laughs> I'm actually close to my late 40s. But what I've found is my peer group, they're all starting to think about scaling back their current role. They want to do something that takes less time and less effort. They're starting to think about coasting. And all I can think about is, again, how lucky I am to be in this industry. I don't want to scale down. I want to scale up. The amount of things that our industry gets to work on today, it's extraordinary. And it's a bunch of new stuff. But even the old stuff, when I say the old stuff, I'm talking about industries that are only 30 years old. The amount of upside for social good, for example, that could come out of the banking sector is extraordinary. It's amazing. And some of the banks are going to see that opportunity and lead the way in using their data for social good. I couldn't think of any industry that will keep me as excited at this age. I'm jealous that at some stage, our children go past us and work on the more interesting problems that we haven't even imagined yet. For people who are landing in data science today, they need to pause and reflect on how lucky they are. Because if they'd been born 100 years ago, they would have been accountants and teachers. Those are the only career paths available to them. And now we are in a position where every industry known to man has the potential to be better through appropriate, innovative uses of data. Exactly right. Every single industry, every part of how we live is up for improvements, for disruption, to be better through data. It is so exciting. And one of the things there in your journey, one of the things that you did and that a lot of people are doing now and will be doing in the future is the transition from research into corporate. And how was that period for you and how was corporate different to what you expected when you first started? This will give everybody a sense of just how naive I was. I turned up on my first day in corporate Australia looking after fraud analytics at National Australia Bank and it suddenly occurred to me that I don't get to choose what I work on. When I was an academic, the only thing that I was told to work on were the lectures that I had to give, was you know the courses that I had to run. And so and I happily gave those lectures, but in terms of research, pretty much the world is your oyster and you get to pick and choose what you research. You know, I came to National Australia Bank on day one and all of a sudden it occurred to me I don't have that choice anymore. Thankfully, incredibly smart and thoughtful father who taught me from a very early age that there are these inspirational posters around. Do what you love. Pursue your dreams and all those sorts of things. If your dream is to be a basket weaver, sure, do that. 
but it's going to be hard possibly to make a living out of that. Most people need to do something that they don't necessarily love. I didn't have a particular passion for crime prevention or financial services at the time. That was the job that presented itself to me and I thought I'd take a leap. And so what you need to do in early learning is you need to find a way to love what you do. It's all well and good to tell people do what you love, but if there's no market for what you love to do, you're in a bit of trouble. So a life lesson that I got taught to me early was to find ways to love what you do. The transition for me is so it wasn't smooth it took me a good couple of months to figure out um, how to be inspired by a direction that i didn't necessarily agree with um, from my boss and again how incredibly naive was i I had no experience in financial services or crime prevention i repeated again and uh, and i thought i knew best so my boss and i kind of diverged we didn't see eye to eye for a little while i came back to understanding his strategy didn't necessarily agree with it but then when i realized the trick it's all on me to figure out how to enjoy what I'm doing here, all of a sudden that just opened up a whole world of possibility for me around now I can devote my energy into making my analytics better within the constraints of what I was told to work on. As opposed to in medical research, find something you're interested in and work on that to your heart's content. And so it is a very different environment and if people are making that transition, just never underestimate how valuable you might think that freedom of choice is. That being said, and you will have experienced this yourself, the rewards beyond the financial rewards, because people think that that's the only reason why you move from academia to corporate, there are many other rewards around moving to a corporate world. And, and one of them is you get to see your impact faster than you do in a medical world. There are any number of brilliant scientists who were dead long before their discoveries were put into medicines that then went on to cure any number of diseases. In a corporate world, if you've done a great piece of work that's aligned with the strategy in a good organization, you get to see things happen. You get to see value created. You get to see customers engaged. At, at Seek, we get to see candidates find jobs that they love that um, they never would have been aware of otherwise. So again, another long-winded answer, but um, it was a rough transition from academia into the corporate world. Yes, I bet. I bet. And long-winded answers are, are the best. That's, um, are the best. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're here for. That's excellent. So thank you. So for you, did you learn to love what you were doing, even if there was a, a degree of uh, disagreement with the direction or the strategy. Just a, a bit of a maturity around one of the phrases that I use, one of the phrases that um, my leaders will use is the phrase that um, people think the working environment is a democracy. Actually, not everybody has the same voting power. So the people who get into the senior levels, they get into those senior levels because they're pretty smart at what they do and they really understand our industry far better than we might give them credit for. So so my boss at the National Australia Bank is an ex-policeman, works closely in crime prevention and white-collar crime back, I don't know if they still call it that today, but um, so he had a lot of insight, a lot of street smarts around the industry that I was working with at the time. And so once I opened myself up, to this guy might know a little bit more than me about the industry. Where does your inspiration come from? Well, it comes from learning something from somebody who knows better than you. It comes from, you have to have a belief that the person who defines the strategy, the quickest path and the best path to kind of good value for your company. And when I say good, I don't mean lots of value. I mean sustainable and still to the social benefit kind of value. If you believe that that person has that pathway mapped out for you, then jump on board. Have that faith that the work that you're doing will get you there. 
what analytics professionals sometimes realize is that the organizations that they work for, in the absence of having any data science capability, they'll never realize that value. So you're on that critical path to helping that organization find that value. And the great thing about what we do is most of the time, it's highly, highly, highly measurable. So going back to my experience understanding experimentation, everything that I've ever done in my career has always had a really robust understanding of the value that we've created for the organization. So we have a product that we developed here at Seek called Weekly Roundup. And we have a control group in place and we are incredibly tough on anybody who wants to kind of dirty that control group with other pieces of recommendations, other recommendations work that go into field. And we've held them aside because having that control group gives us two things. First of all, it lets us know that we've put 4 million quality recommendations into the Australian marketplace that would not have happened otherwise. And so we know that. But probably more importantly, without that methodology, it's great to show that you're creating value, but sometimes there are unintended consequences and you could actually be eroding value from your organisation. And because senior people thought that this project was a good idea at the time, you may never question the implementation of that project. And without that experimental methodology in place, will you be able to show that actually unintended consequence here we were actually taking value away from the organization. We better stop this thing. Or which parts of it are working really well? Which parts of it aren't working as well? How do we learn from the really well behaving bits of the algorithm? And how do we get the best of that and insert that into the poorly behaving segments if you like? That's right. This is excellent because yeah, those finding out the real value, the difference that a piece of work can make is done, has to be done through experimental design. But have you ever had a situation where you had pushback in applying the experimental design where people weren't comfortable with running experiments? Did you ever have a situation like that? And how were you able to overcome it or, or not? So in some of the projects that I've been involved in in my career, a control group for the most part is in this environment is a set of customers or candidates who you hold aside. You know what you would have said to them, you know how you would have targeted them, but you don't. And you just observe those people and see what they do organically, naturally. And that gives you a baseline of what would have happened had your algorithms not been in place. Some of the some of your counterparts, be they in product or in marketing or in finance, they don't see that control group as an opportunity to learn and understand how the product is working. They see that as money that you've left on the table, you know, value that you've left behind, an indulgence by those propeller heads who really don't understand how business works. I always point back to it's great to know that the product's working, but does anybody in the organization, and typically it's the people who have studied economics and econometrics and a little bit of kind of history of medical research. I used that phrase before, unintended consequences. Sometimes you do things that seem logical, that are always well-intentioned, and you put it into field and it actually backfires on you. And unless you have that learning arm of the study in place, unless you have a control type group, you just won't know that you're eroding value, that you're lowering engagement, that you know customers are walking away because you've done this thing. That's always my pushback to my colleagues who don't want to have that design. It's not an indulgence. It's how do we ensure that the product is doing what we hoped it would do? And if the product is working really well, well, how do we know how to make it better unless we have something in place that gives us a baseline from which to work from? Most of the time I've won the argument. There have been a few times that I haven't. Yes, I'm sure, but that's a great way 
to make it clear for people because I know I know that in situations sometimes organizations or maybe like small companies sometimes they have few customers or low levels of customers that are big ticket items that is one of the cases that I've seen where uh, sometimes leadership or executives are a bit uneasy about following an experimental design where on one side leaving people out as a control group or that's one case or sometimes people are uneasy about testing situations for example like pricing around the market and giving customers different levels of pricing to be able to optimize pricing when you have a very low number of customers so i think that your your point helps with that as well yeah, everything's a trade-off, right? So your background, you came from institutional banking. That's right. That high-value end of banking, for example, private banking, you're right. But those groups have small numbers of customers with enormous transactions. There is a tough trade-off conversation to be had. Interestingly, whenever I had conversations with kind of that end of National Australia Bank when I was there, uh, the pushback was always, we have relationships with our customers. We know them far better than you ever could. And I was always armed in the back pocket with a whole bunch of insights about that customer that we had from the data. And these were cookie cutter insights that were easy to derive. So then you'd ask that relationship banker, for example, well, tell me how many customers have this product that have displayed these behaviors that are, you know, kind of surefire indicators that they're about to defect and as one example. And they wouldn't know the answer. And so you just kind of revealed to them, hey, look, here's a list of your five customers with those behaviors that looking like they're going to walk out the door in a minute now you better go give them a call and all of a sudden those colleagues would have that kind of moment of realization that look in their eye when i thought wow i really don't know my customers anywhere near as well as i thought i might and so just bringing those kind of examples in the heat of debate to those stakeholders it being completely humble about it not trying to be antagonistic about it but just making your colleagues aware that there's a whole bunch of richness in the data that you may not have been aware of and uh, try to take them on the journey that way because otherwise what you have is you have a whole bunch of propeller heads like us who come into these large organizations now this is why i'm not in charge of communication but this is essentially what we're saying to the rest of the organization we're saying I've never spent any time in front of a customer and I've never really designed a product and I've never really tried to sell the product, but I've got access to a whole bunch of data. I've done this really fancy piece of mathematics. It's actually way too complex for me to kind of describe to you. Would you mind making a phone call on the back of this piece of analysis that I've done? And of course, the front line, they don't respond too well to that communication. And so finding just those little nuggets to kind of take them on the journey is incredibly helpful. We don't do anywhere near as good a job on taking our colleagues on a journey as we should. We've grown up in a world of black and white and equal signs, and we don't understand a world of debate or a world of grey anywhere near uh, as much as our colleagues do. And so trying to, again, I keep saying, taking them on a humble, thought-provoking, non-intimidating journey to get them across issues around control groups, to issues around experimental design, appropriate use of data is paramount. Exactly right. And what do you see as the role of educating uh, colleagues in taking them in a journey? What, what do you see the role of education? Yeah, we certainly have a long way to go to help organizations get the best out of the value that we can create. I'm really privileged at SEEK. Uh, the only reason my role exists is because SEEK did a big strategic piece of thinking around the future of this environment. And they came to the realization that, you know, their data truly is an asset and they need to create value for the marketplace, efficiencies for the marketplace, help candidates, again, find the jobs 
they never would have heard of and help them stand out. And the only way to do that is through analytics. And so I'm really lucky in that I don't need to do too much of a evangelist job here at Seek because it's already been done for me well in advance of me getting here. But there are a lot of organizations go through the journey and I'm being a bit mischievous in the way I describe this, but the CEO will be sitting at the gold club at some sort of airport and pick up fast company and see an article on big data and land at their next port and put a phone call in and say, hey, I've read about big data, we need to get one of those. And all of a sudden there's a scramble for an analytics team and then the analytics team are trying to find a way to show that they're valuable to the organisation, which is not what we're great at. What we're great at is executing on a strategy. In the absence of a strategy, what the analytics teams or the data scientists teams need to do is they need to find people and if it's one of their own if it is a data scientist that's fantastic those people are as rare as hen's teeth and you should pay them as much as you can afford those people who can talk to the business in the language of the business around what the data science teams are doing that's what you need we had some great success at national australia bank where we hired in into the team and i still talk about this as the four most important hires that we did in my team at that time were four ex-bankers from different parts of the business retail private business wealth and for about two months they did nothing other than kind of in head office meetings we certainly didn't sit them as a group of four on a pot of four desks we sat them and scattered them in amongst my team so they could have the day-to-day conversations they could hear what the analytics teams were talking about and the issues they were having and through osmosis they got a really solid understanding of what we could do what we couldn't do uh, why we were doing things and through that they got a really good grounding in the analytics team. And then we sent them out. We flew them all around Australia, talking to the big groups of bankers around what we did. And they spoke to them in bankers' language, not in data scientists' language. And quite incredibly, for insight, for leads that we'd been sending those bankers for years, we didn't change anything in the code. Right. So the SQL remained as it always had been. But all of a sudden, when you had, when the bankers had, if you like the phrase, their own people talking to them about the analytics, as opposed to the data scientists talking to them about banking, all of a sudden, because one of their own were talking it up and talking about the virtues of what we were doing, the engagement rates and the sell-through rates and the pipeline creation just went through the roof. The numbers were so incredible that I had a separate part of my team recut the numbers because I didn't believe the numbers that our BI team were pulling out on the back of lead generation once this new comms team had been on the road. I always talk about, I think I said it earlier, we've grown up, you know, for me, at 10 years of age, our biggest hindrance in terms of communication is the equal sign. You and I will disagree about something at a young age in mathematics and we'll go up to, we're old enough to remember blackboards, we'll go up to a blackboard and we'll go through the formula, left-hand side and right-hand side, and eventually we'll come to a solution. And one of us will look at the other one and say, oh, you know what, you were right, I was wrong because it's unambiguous in mathematics about what is right and what is wrong. And then we come to a corporate world where there is politics and bureaucracy and competing priorities, and we just haven't been trained to live in that world. There are different languages in business speak, and we come to a problem and we immediately see the solution because we're just following a logical mathematical framework. We don't understand all this other complexity that's going on. We're just not trained to cut through that. The education piece, you have to remember too, 
particularly the senior people in corporate organisations, they've got the senior levels of corporate Australia still have a large proportion of them are there because they made good decisions from the shop floor. They got promoted to the local management. They got then promoted out of making good decisions into state management and then the head office, etc. And all of a sudden, these nerds have come in who don't know anything about the business <laughs> but have access to all the information, right? Because we've got access to all the data. You can imagine that would be incredibly threatening to somebody who'd come from, like I said, the shop floor and doesn't have those skills. We just need to be mindful and respectful of how those people got there and help them understand the value that we can create. We're not there to oppose them. We're there to help them. And I think as a data science community, as an analytics community, we quite we haven't quite realised just the impact, the negative impact that the organisation can feel if we come in as the everything's wrong, we're going to change things, everything's going to be data driven and we'll fix it into, hey, we're here to partner with you and help make you better. We, I don't think we have enough of those conversations. So going back to your original question, I think education, in terms of anything that we can do, teams, if you don't have a communicator in that team, you need to get one lickety-split as soon as possible. Yes. And what you describe there in terms of understanding where, where senior managers and leaders today have come from and what their careers have been like, describing that and the way that you have taken, I guess, non-data people, non-technical people and brought them into your team for them to understand what the team does so then they can go and communicate with the rest of the business. They're both a like very empathetic ways to lead and create change. I'm sure like, it is a very powerful way to create a data-driven culture and to start to change the perception of, of data and analytics in the organizations that, that you have been a part of. I think it's a really great way to do it. Yeah, I think it's the only way forward. Awesome. And I wanted to ask you about the other side of the coin that you mentioned that data scientists don't have experience in product design and don't have experience in sales. What do you think about data scientists getting that experience? Yep. I think data scientists need to remember two things. So first of all, on the customer side, for most industries that we work in, data scientists oftentimes forget they're actually a customer as well. And so I was in banking for 13 years, three years in fraud and 10 years in marketing. I'm a banking customer. I always will be. And so on the customer side of things, I've always tried to remind my staff is that you are in an incredible position. You're in a position where you have access to the business strategy. So it would be a crime if you didn't go out of your way to understand the business strategy. You have access to the data and ability to do stuff with that data that nobody else has. But you're also a customer. So if you can think about what the organization's strategy is and what they're trying to achieve, throw in what would delight a customer if that strategy was implemented and think about yourself as that customer, how would you be engaged with that strategy as a customer? Then all of a sudden, you'll start to think of ways to use that data to deliver on that strategy. But you need to think like a customer. The second thing is on the organizational side, I'll call it the sales side, there is nothing more powerful than standing shoulder to shoulder or headphone jack to headphone jack with a salesperson. And National Australia Bank, we had a shadow banking program and I would periodically go into 
the branches and just stand there with the teller or stand there with the branch manager and just listen to the conversations that these people needed to have with customers day in, day out. Sitting on the phones at the call centre, you know, when I came here to Seek, one of the first things I did was I, I made a beeline for our own call centre, uh, outbound sales and inbound support to understand what are the problems that our staff have? What are the things that customers typically want to know? How do we service uh, those demands? Two, three things happen. The first thing that happens is you can see how the strategy unfolds. If it's a good strategy, you can see the strategy unfolding in the front line with the customers where it counts. You get to understand how your frontline staff work and behave. And if you're a lead generation team, then you get the opportunity to see how we used to send leads to tellers at the bank and we get really frustrated that these leads never got action. But when you have an irate customer in front of you complaining about some service that we didn't provide and we've got these nerds back at head office saying, hey, could you talk to this customer about taking out a home loan? All of a sudden you understand why you know the dynamics of the time don't necessarily lend themselves to that proactive <laughs> conversation and you get a bit more empathy. You get to hear what the customers want, what they actually want, what they actually need. And then on top of all of that, the more aware data scientists will walk away with a little bit more humility because when you spend all your time in an ivory tower in head office and you don't spend time in the front line and you see the pressure that your frontline staff uh, encountered day in, day out, you get an over-inflated sense of just how important your work is. And so if you want a reality check, a, a little bit of dose of, like I said, humility to spend time with those people on the front line. And it just, it brings the business to life for you. Exactly. It's how you get to see the realities that are, as you say, like not captured in the data and get to be more empathetic with your colleagues. That's a really good, great advice, really good way to do it. And before we were speaking about how data has the power to, to change and improve all areas of life, all industries, and obviously in government and not-for-profits as well. And with that, we see a huge demand for data scientists. And essentially, every organization is in need of data scientists. So I wanted to dive into that a little bit and get your thoughts on the extremely high demand of data scientists that we have at the moment versus another great point that you mentioned of data scientists helping create value in corporate and being able to see the fruits of their labor. I agree that, that it's definitely faster than in research, but do you think that at the moment there's a, an element of over-demand, under-supply, and sometimes people move too quickly from job to job? What do you see as the the repercussions of the dynamic of having an over-demand and under-supply of data scientists at the moment? I think the repercussions are clear. I think you know, putting aside value creation for organizations, organizations simply aren't going to be able to scale and, and kind of maximize the opportunity that's in front of them. But I think there's a whole bunch of social good that we're on the cusp of, of while like this, you know, the current, my current generation, we're going to see some of that. I don't think we'll realize anywhere near the benefits as much as the next generation will bring. So I have like an enormously rosy outlook for, you know, I watch my, I've got two older stepsons, known those boys since they were three and six. We've got a son who's about to turn 13. And I've watched this generation of kids grow up in a world that is data enabled. So they are nowhere near as, you know, we need to be frightened of privacy, not privacy, we need to be frightened of the issues around privacy. We need to be frightened around 
the issues of inappropriate use of data. But that generation coming up behind us, I think they're a little bit more balanced in general in terms of how fearful they are and how willing they are to give up data to make their lives better and easier. I think certainly not qualified to make this statement with any accuracy, but I also see through the proliferation of internet and the world becoming a much smaller place as a consequence of the internet. I see these kids as, you know, seeing, you know, they don't see race and they don't see gender like our generation has before them. I think a lot of the issues that our generation, our parents and, you know, the generations before us, I think they're slowly going away. And so these kids are going to have, you know, access to technology and data. They're going to have a far deeper willingness to engage with data and, and all that it can do on the, on the back of analytics. I see far deeper sense of social good coming out of this group. I'm jealous of the stuff that they are going to do. I'm jealous of the world that they're going to create <laughs> once we're dead and gone. That's on the future. In the here and now, I, I think we have a real problem. I was lucky. I had a passion for it. Um, I used to sit down at, at primary school. Teacher would bring out, you know, that butcher's paper and give us a palette of paint and say, create a picture. Let your imagination run wild. And, and you'd see kids jumping in and, and pulling together all sorts of artistic creations. And then you'd have music and kids could sing at the top of their lungs and they could dance and have a good time and then after all that creative activity we'd sit down and we'd cross our legs on the carpet and then the teacher would say repeat after me one times seven is seven two times seven is fourteen we just taught kids that mathematics was dry it was really boring we didn't bring it to life for them it's only people like you and i who had a real passion for it who emerged out of that and so you know governments have become aware of this our industry the, the likes of you and i and the active people in our industry today are aware of this and we're trying to find ways to make it come alive to the generation who's coming in behind us and in the here and now we don't have those people who've been doing this from the age of 10 and so what we're doing is we're professionally fast tracking people who have seen an emergence of data science and the opportunity that it brings in terms of a wealthy life, if you like, because it's a well-paid job. This is way too strong a word, but you see mercenaries come in because they see that as a career, not as a passion. And the people who create amazing things are the people who they're doing it because it is their passion. That next wave, the wave will come in behind us, those kids who genuinely have a passion, well, they're going to be more and more of those will be nurtured than ever were before. They're going to come through and they're going to do incredible things that I can't even imagine. That's right. Wow, that is fantastic. And that's something that what you just mentioned are two big things that notice that have been, a, I think, a big part of your life. One being having fun in what you do, enjoying what you do. And the other one is giving back and a focus on social good. So, for example, you were mentioning uh, early on the, the people in your career uh, and to an extent in your life, the ones that made a, a big impact where people focus on giving back and social good. And you were saying how they could have been researchers or lecturers that have, could have gone to corporate and earn a little money, but they decided to stay in, in academia and do fantastic research or inspire young people like you when you were going through. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about those two themes and how do you bring them to life in your life, in your day-to-day -day professionally, both the having fun and the giving back and social good. The giving back and the social good for me is easy because I've maintained the relationships back into academia. So I do a, a fair amount of work. I try to, you know, my aim was to have at least one publication per year out of academia and some years I've kind of I've missed that target and other years I've managed two or three so in balance I've been okay 
Nice. But um, the aim was to always, there are a lack of bias statisticians. And so making sure that I made myself available to that world was one way. I also you know, still make myself available for paper review, manuscript review in research journals. I'm a little bit more removed now. You know, the people who were doing the teaching when I left have gone on to more senior positions. So, you know, tapping into their networks and helping mentor people on the way through become less and less. But I'm involved with a, a couple of organisations that share of the advisory board for the Institute of Analytics Professionals Australia you know, and some of the initiatives that we're trying to drive through that group. Um, one is uh, data for social good. We have a real focus on our conference this year around speakers who having you know, social impact um, have, so how do we inspire the local analytics professionals uh, on those stories? And the other one is, I sit on the advisory board for the Centre of Business Analytics at Melbourne Business School. You know, take every opportunity to talk to the Masters of Business Analytics students around you know, the opportunity that's about to open up in front of them how they can have that social impact. I was a big fan of Batman when I was a kid. This willingness to serve kind of rubbed off on me. And so we have an incredible amount of power at our fingertips as an analytics community. Wouldn't it be a waste if while we were making a good living uh, in our day-to-day jobs, wouldn't it be a waste if we didn't harness that and find ways as individuals and as collectives to help society out? I think we have a responsibility. I think for those of us who emerged you know, out of those boring times table groups with the passion, <laughs> each of us will all have stories of inspirational teachers and mentors. So lucky enough to have those people in our lives and we kind of emerge out, out of our own journeys into worlds where we can have decent living. So we have to pay that back. Who are we inspiring in kind? Who are we teaching? Who are we guiding? So that's, you know, I'm very strong on that. We all have a role to play because for those of us who are here now, like I said, if we'd been born a hundred years ago, we would have been accountants. We would have been teachers. Those were the only career paths. We happen to land at a time and place where my graduation ceremony for my master's degree, there were four of us who had a master's, there were four master's slash PhD graduates in that graduation ceremony who'd done statistics and applied mathematics. And there were 200 people who were graduating at master's and PhD level in database kind of disciplines in computer science. So 200 people were figuring out how to collect data and only four of us were there to figure out what to do with it. And not through, in my own experience, not through any design, not through any strategy did I put myself in this place. It's just pure dumb luck that I managed to be here. And so somehow, if you believe or if you don't believe in a more controlling power, somehow we found ourselves in this position. We just need to be grateful for that and make sure we put positive energy back into our communities as a consequence. 100%. Yes, definitely. And that's, yeah, and going back. Who knows? One of us somewhere, somehow is going to catch what today is an incurable disease. Maybe we're going to inspire or mentor that biostatistician who stumbles across a pocket of people who have cured themselves in the data around that disease and says, hey, Anthony, I've just realized here's something that you can do. So one of these kids that we inspire is going to do some good that we'll all get an advantage out of. So let's make sure we pay it back. A hundred percent. Yes. And I love that idea. We were fortunate to get the right mentoring and inspiration. So now definitely have to go back and do that for others. And that's how we keep creating good in the world. I love that. That's so great. And I wanted to, to ask you, in your view, what makes a great data scientist? So obviously, let's put technical skills aside, right? So that's the ticket to the game. Uh, you've got to have great technical skills. And you don't necessarily even have to have great technical skills. 
But going back to the sporting analogy, you know, I'm a big fan of golf, and I don't believe for a second that at the height of his power, Tiger Woods would turn up to the golf course and look at his golf club for the first time as he was teeing off on the first hole of a four-day tournament. When he's back at home, he's grinding the soles of his wedges. He's looking at the grooves. He's playing with the grip. He understands how the line, the loft of the club work. He understands the compression of the ball. And my point is, as a craftsman, he's always tinkering. He's always playing. He's always curious. He's always thinking about golf. The same can be said for pick the best Formula One driver, pick the best soccer player. Does anybody think that Messi or Ronaldo go home and they don't play keeps up here by themselves or they're dribbling balls around in their corridors? You know, they're, they're always thinking about it. They're always kind of playing in their space. And so some of the best recruits that I've ever had in the analytics space have presented on paper and interview with their experience as, okay, not necessarily shooting the lights out, not necessarily falling way behind. The ones who stand out are the ones who are doing it outside of work, who are thinking about it outside of work. I always go back to an example of a staff member we put on here at Seek a number of years ago. On her resume, she had HTML address for her blog. And so I went into that blog and one of the things that she'd done was she'd taken public transport data and some local council data in the Melbourne CBD around places where you could view the fireworks on New Year's Eve and some research data around how many people would go to those various sites. And then she optimized. She built an optimization model around optimizing for the best view of the fireworks and minimizing the amount of time it would take to get home. Now, the reality huh. is on New Year's Eve, when you go into town to see the fireworks, you were trying to maximize your good time. You're not thinking about public transport. That's an afterthought and sleep on a park bench if you need to. And so the point <laughs> being, nobody cared about her analysis. There was no New Year's Eve reveler ever went to her website to figure out, you know what, if I stand on this part of this park, I can get the best of the fireworks and minimize my time home. So it was a piece of analysis that was completely useless, but she just wanted to play. She had an idea around a technique that she wanted to goof around with and she just wanted to play. And so she found some data to do that. And I find the best practitioners that I've ever worked with, you know, they love it so much that they just want to play. They think about it when they wake up. They think about it when they go home. And they're just always goofing around with this. In my own experience, I can take you to the third hole at Royal Park Golf Course because I've collected every golf card that I've ever had with my friends. And I can show you that my strategy on that hole, which I have done, performed the analysis of, my strategy over-indexes compared to my mates who I play with day in, day out at that golf course because I've got the data. I used to complain to my brother. I used to, he lived at a place that was on my path to my office in the mornings. I used to complain to him that was, I'm wasting so much time picking him up. I have to stop. I have to wait, etc. And he'd say, what are you talking about? It's 30 seconds out of your life and we just have this playful banter. And then one day I realized I had a notepad in my in my car and I actually started, would you believe, I collected data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I knew what time I left home. I knew what time I got to his place. I knew what time I got into my parking spot at work. I recorded whether or not it was raining, if I picked my brother up or not, public holidays and school holidays. At the end of the day, I showed my brother, he cost me six minutes out of my life every, every morning that I picked him up. <laughs>
I showed that every minute after 6.30 that I left home, that cost me another 36 seconds in commute time because I'd hit traffic. I want my brother to the ends of the earth. So six minutes is, it is not a cost at all. But I was just interested in, you know, I hadn't done any change point approximation for a long time. And I knew that there must be some tipping point in peak hour traffic where all of a sudden it becomes painful to you. And so that line that I dropped in there, which was after 6.30, every minute cost me 36 seconds. I just wanted to goof around with change point approximation. Nobody cares about my commute time. I didn't care about my commute time. I find the best practitioners, they're the people who want to play. They're the people always thinking about what if I had this data or I've got this data. Does anybody realize that we could do this thing with it? And so the technical skills, like I said, it's the ticket to the door. It's, it's what gets you to the game. It's, um, you know, those people who are passionate about it, think about it all the time. They'll bring that extra something. They'll think of something that you never thought of and they'll make your product better. They'll make your insight light up. Those are the people who set themselves apart. And um, again, I'll go back to my earlier point. For people who are passionate about it, that's easy. And for those who aren't, if you want to stand out, find a way to love it. Yes, that's exactly right. That is fantastic. And how about for data science team leads and managers and people in the next stage of their career? What do you think makes a great data science lead or manager and what are your uh, some pieces of advice that you would have for for them so to lead so first of all so the practitioners who want to lead i think first of all they need to take stock and understand what you give up as a leader um, and what you take on because um, what you give up and what you take on are two very different things it can be a bit of a shock so the first thing is what you take on you take on people Right, you're no longer responsible for the algorithm. You're responsible for people. And I know when I started my leadership journey, I learned all my empathy from mathematics, which is to say, I had precious little people are complex pieces, right? So when everything's going well, when you've got great staff, it's easy to be a leader. But you need to ask yourself the question: When one of your staff members are playing up, when they need to be given a tough conversation, are you ready to have that conversation? Because that's not an analytic skill; that's a leadership skill. The tough conversations: How are you inspiring those people? How are you bringing the strategy to life? So you need to understand strategy, and strategy is a very nuanced, very complex discipline. And if you don't have the appetite to engage with that discipline, then you're doing your analytics team a disservice because You'll be getting them to do work uh, that the organization doesn't need or want or create value out of. So on the leadership piece in terms of dealing with people, people need to understand that. And, and oftentimes it gets overlooked. The other thing is organizations need to be very careful about promoting the best analysts because why is the best analyst the best analyst? Well, they're the best analyst because they're passionate about what they do and they're highly skilled in that regard. And maybe, just maybe, they want to continue to be the best analyst and become a better analyst. So we need to be respectful of pathways for people that keep them on the tools and in the technical detail, but still recognize their contribution. And if you like, at a status level, the seniority that they attain as a technical specialist. But if the person wants to move up and out of the hands-on skills and into leadership, we need to be very, very, very mindful. I keep using the word mindful. That I said it much earlier, that analytics is an art. 
And so when one of your team members is working on a problem and they're not necessarily using the palette of paint and the choice of paintbrush that you would have used had you been working on that problem, you need to find a way to remove yourself and give them space to solve yeah. the problem their way. Because for the most part, particularly an experienced, good analyst, they'll come to the right a right solution, not necessarily the right solution because sometimes yeah. you can kill the only many different ways. So you, you need to be comfortable enough that they're solving the problem in a way that you wouldn't have chosen. Uh, and for the more junior data scientists who are going down, who are clearly going down the wrong path, there is a fine balance between, you know, how far down that path do they go such that they learn the lesson from their mistake? Because what you don't want to be is you don't want to be the leader who says, but don't do it that way because this will happen and it won't work. And don't do it that way because this will happen and it won't work. What will happen is that junior person will become very disengaged and they'll lose the ability to make any decisions themselves. And oftentimes, just reflect back as a child, when did you learn things? Well, you learn things when you make your own mistakes. But you don't want them to make too big a mistake or too many mistakes such that they're actually costing the business money. But there's a fine balance between when you lead people, you know, how much rope do you give them before they actually hang themselves? And none of these skills, the problem is none of these skills are analytical skills. They're management skills. They're leadership skills. So for the people who aspire to be in a leadership position, if you followed the kind of academic path that I had, which was all mathematics, you simply don't have the skill. You don't have the training to be a leader and you need to recognize that. And almost anybody can train, be trained to be a leader. I think very few people are natural born leaders, but almost everybody can be trained to be a leader. So you need to be open to the fact that you're a blank canvas. You really don't have much experience. Better go out there and find some learning and do some reading and get some mentors as fast as possible. That's right. But that's a really self-aware and I wasn't self-aware at the time. <laughs> at least I know what um, that in my case, I made a lot of mistakes, uh, and especially on the, on the leadership and the, the people management side. Yeah, I made a lot of mistakes and did things almost in every way that they could be done wrong or incorrectly. <laughs> I did. I did. I feel like I did them all too. <laughs> so yeah, Sorry, from, from, the, from the experience of yeah, but as you say, like become more self-aware and, and learn a better way that suits me as well. How was that journey for you? I think I made all the mistakes as well. And again, I'm lucky to have had good mentors around me. Also lucky to have had, in the good times, created good relationships with my staff. And you know, those relationships, the, the creation of those relationships was a two-way thing. Um, I've always had genuinely great people reporting into me. When I got it wrong as a leader, the first thing, it's amazing. Your staff in particular react incredibly well to a leader who puts their hand up and says, hey, I just want to call out, I think I got this thing wrong. I think I behaved badly in this situation. I think I gave you some guidance that wasn't right. Um, mm. A lot of people new to leadership think that admitting to a mistake is a sign of weakness. But in actual fact, it's actually quite empowering because what your staff want to know is they want to know that you're as human as they are. And you have putting your hand up and showing that you've got, you used the phrase before, the self-awareness, but also the humility to call out that you've made a mistake. They respond really strongly to that because what they'll take away from that is you're on a journey, you're making it very public to them that you feel like they are an important part of your journey, but also the next time you make a mistake, they're not going to live in fear that you're going to kind of pursue that mistake and keep pushing it because you can't possibly admit to being wrong. 
everybody can take a, a deep breath, kind of reset, work on the right things, and the next time you as a leader make a mistake, you know, they'll feel empowered enough to say, hey, I think this thing that you said, or I think this direction that we're going, I don't think you're doing the right thing. I don't think you said the right thing. I think you may have insulted somebody inadvertently, and you give them the right to help you reset again, apologize, do what you need to kind of correct course, and then you go again. Whereas if you don't take that opportunity to reset, then you'll just lose people because they'll just stop believing in you as a leader. So putting your hand up saying, I was wrong, not just leadership and corporate, but some of the most powerful conversations I've had with my own boys is where I've gone back to them and said, you know what, the way I was parenting you in this situation, I think was wrong. Amazingly positive reactions every single time. So yeah, we've, we've used the phrase a few times, a little bit of humility right, goes a long way. That's really nice. That's And that's a really great way to form close and positive connections in your work environment, obviously in your home environment as well, that, that bring people closer together while being, I guess, nice and supportive and accepting of each other's mistakes that are always going to happen. And it helps people stay closer together through the journey that, that we're going on. I like to think of this sometimes as a, um, for those people who have done, got a stats background, think about this as a, a mark of chain. And uh, there are only two states. One is being right and the other one is being wrong. And even if the probability of being right is 99%, the probability over a lifetime of an infinite number of kind of decisions you need to make, 99% to the power of a very big number, you know, hmm. it gets to zero very quickly. So eventually you're going to make a mistake. So <laughs> just be ready to deal with it appropriately. I love it. <laughs> that is excellent. That is excellent. This has been such a great conversation. And I do have just one last question for you. It is, what is one takeaway or one piece of advice that you would like people in our field to be thinking about something that could either improve their careers or make them more effective or help them forge a better relationships at work or see something in a different way. What would be one one takeaway or piece of advice that you would like people to think about in our industry? In our industry, if I if it was just the one, because and, and we've touched on most of them anyway, but I repeat the one that I spoke about before, love it enough to play with it all the time. If you, again, just go back to regardless of what you like to spectate, if it's sport, if it's literature, if it's art, even if it's politics, think about the people who do this the best. Think about the greatest ones that you've ever come across and ask yourself the question, did they only do this nine to five? Did they get to work, clock on and start being a great leader, start being a great sportsman? Were they thinking about this day and night? If you're thinking about this day and night, you can't help but excel. Um, you can't help but stumble across questions that are going to unlock doors that you never thought were there, that are going to open up new opportunities. They're going to open up more questions and um, you're going to find other things to explore. You're going to be more efficient. But also, eventually you get to a point where you'll see the junior people coming in behind you and stumbling on things. And if you're passionate enough about this, at some stage you will have thought of or you will have made the same mistake. You're prepared to kind of catch them and help them accelerate along the way. You don't necessarily need to be passionate about the work that your employer makes you do. I love golf. I would say a third of my thinking time in analytics is golf-related. But what does that give me? Well, that's fast-tracked my knowledge of geospatial analytics because that's what golf is. It's played on 100 acres and it's three-dimensional and there's a whole bunch of geospatial stuff that we could bring to bear. Well, when I came to Seek, 
what are jobs? Jobs are physically located in all different parts of the country. I didn't have to do a lot of research or education around geospatial when we start thinking about how does travel time to work affect different roles in different industries. I was already there because I've already been playing with it for a long time because I was passionate about something. So find ways to play with it, find ways to think about it in the morning, think about it at night. With the amount of data that's becoming available to us and the shortage of analytics professionals who are there to kind of take advantage of that data, it is only going to hold you in good stead. So play, play, play. That's right. And if you do that, if you find what you enjoy and you and you play with it, you will come across a use that may have seemed unlikely, as unlikely as playing with golf data and then Absolutely. understanding, analyzing where people work. Absolutely. Um, it's all there in uh, front of us. We just need people with enough imagination to um, take us down these pathways. I love it so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anthony. It's been an absolute pleasure. I, I really can't thank you enough for sharing all your, your wisdom and insight. And you're so inspiring. I'm sure that the listeners would, would have been feeling very inspired with, with everything that you shared. Thank you for the opportunity to interview you and, uh, and for everything you're doing for our industry. Thank you so much. My, my pleasure, mate. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.